There's a man by the name of Robert Moffat. Here's a picture of him. Moffat was a missionary. You can see the dates. It was in the 19th century. Moffat ministered in South Africa. And it was while he was in South Africa that he was writing to another young aspiring missionary. And he was writing back to him who lived in uh, England. And Moffat said this to that young missionary. In writing, he said, Many a morning have I stood on the porch of my house and looking northward have seen the smoke arise from villages that have never heard of Jesus Christ. I have seen at different times the smoke of a thousand villages, villages whose people are without Christ, without God, and without hope in the world. Moffat looked out on that vast landscape and he saw those people who had never heard of Jesus, but they needed the gospel. And he thought, how can we get the gospel to them? Do you know who Moffat was writing to? A man by the name of David Livingston. You've heard of him. He opened up the interior of Africa. He ministered there for over 50 years. This is ambitious, is it not? The ambition of an individual to look out and say, of all the things these people need, is it education? Is it money? Is it finances? Is it health care? What these people need is the gospel. They need to hear of Jesus Christ. This has been the ambition of many of God's people over the years, and it should be an ambition that we should share as well. Here's what I want you to take away this morning. All of God's people should be ambitious to see the gospel of Christ preached to those who have never heard. All of God's people. This is what Paul is arguing for in Romans 15. He's trying to stir up these Roman believers for this kind of ambition that he has. And he says, let's partner together to do this. What makes Paul ambitious? What fuels this ambition? And why should we share in it as well? Well, first of all, I just want to ask this question. For Paul, he wanted to go to Spain and reach those that had never heard of Jesus Christ. Are there places like that in the world today? We might tend to think, well, with the, the growth in technology and the radio waves, I mean, certainly the gospel is predominant. And we would be mistaken to believe so by projecting our westernized culture on the rest of the world. But the fact is, there's a region that has yet to be reached, and missiologists speak of this. This is called the 1040 window. You know why it's called the 1040 window? It starts at 10 degrees above the equator and goes to 40 degrees north above the equator. And it's in that little box right there that includes Central Asia and Northern Africa and much of the Far East. It's estimated that two-thirds of the population of the world live in this window. Three billion people. And half of the world's least evangelized cities are located there. And there are places where Christ is not named. Why should we be ambitious to take the gospel there? 
What reason could there possibly be to sacrifice and give of oneself or even give of one's resources to help others get there? That is what we're looking at this morning in this ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not named. I have two simple points for you this morning, but they're long, so don't think you're getting out early. What are these things? I'll give them to you in advance, and then we'll explain them. Paul's ambition was fueled by the certainty of God's will as revealed in his word. This is where he begins. This whole passage begins in Romans 15 and verse 8, and actually runs down through the 21st verse. And here we looked at this briefly last week, When we read in verse 8, Paul begins by saying, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That's Jewish people. Jesus Christ came to this earth, born in a Jewish home. He ministered in that little area of Palestine. His ministry was restricted to the Jewish people. But he did so to show God's truthfulness, his faithfulness. And to confirm certain promises that God had made to those people. And Jesus was fulfilling those promises. But ultimately, look at verse 9. It was in order that Gentiles, people outside of that little region, people of other religious persuasions, that those people too would glorify God for his mercy. And this is very important for Paul that all God's people together would understand this is why God redeems anybody. Yes, it's a benefit for us to be saved from our sin and spared from the wrath of God, but ultimately it's so that people will worship him and glorify him as he is. And this is why Paul has made such a big deal of this. Look back at chapter 15 and verse 5. You know that Romans 14 to uh, the middle of 15 is that section that we like to look at in the Bible regarding differences in Christian opinion, right? And how we deal with people of different persuasions. And Paul is dealing primarily with the difference between Jewish and Gentile scruples. And how do you get these people together to love one another in the body of Christ? And why is that important? Look at verse 5. God says, or Paul says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice, what? Glorify who? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I think most of the epistle of Romans is written with this view. Jews and Gentiles glorifying God together so that that gospel can go forth to the rest of the world. And Paul says that's exactly why Jesus came. He came as a servant among Jewish people, but the ultimate end in view was to save all the nations. And that is why, if you go now to verse 9 of Romans 15, he says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is what? Okay, what's he going to do now? He's going to say this was always God's plan. And he goes back in the Old Testament and he quotes from the three major sections of the Old Testament, the writings, the law, and the prophets to prove this was always God's plan to save Gentile people. And look at how he does this. Verse 9, 
he quotes from Psalm 18. And he says, Therefore, the Bible says in Psalm 18, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. We looked at that last week. Contextually, the I there is the Messiah. The Messiah proclaiming the praises of God among the nations. That's what would be happening. Look at verse 10. He quotes from Deuteronomy 32, the law. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Here's the idea that the Gentiles are included with the people of God, these Jewish people. And this was always a part of God's plan. So rejoice together. Look at verse 11. He quotes from that smallest of divisions in your Bible, the 117th Psalm, two verses long. And it reads, praise the Lord all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. And he says this was God's plan, not just a particular people group, but all the nations glorify God. All the nations come to him through Jesus, the Messiah, that you would worship him. Finally, verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah 11 in the prophets, and he says, the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. This would be the mark of the Messiah. He is a great king over all the nations. And because that is true, the last line, in him these Gentiles will find what? Hope. The whole world today is looking for hope, a leader that will come and bring peace and satisfy everything. And God says that day is coming. The Messiah will come even to all the nations, and when they bow to him, they will find hope in the true king. Now notice with me verse 13. Paul applies this this way. May the God of hope fill you, believers at Rome, with all joy and peace in what? In believing. Believing what? Believing what he had just listed from the scripture. He just given all of these scriptures about God's intent to reach the Gentiles, and now he's saying, Do you believe that? Hope in that. What? That this is God's will, it's his plan. And you'll find joy and peace in that, in working with God's will to reach the nations. It provides joy and peace as we labor to this end. And the rest of verse 13, he says, so that the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in this hope. Beloved, are you hopeful that when we send our missionaries to Central Asia, that there will be people there that hear the gospel who have never heard and come to faith in Christ and worship him now and someday you'll worship with them in eternity? Are you hopeful? Why should you hope? Because God, this has been in his mind from eternity. This is his will and his will will be accomplished. So rejoice, be ambitious to be right in the center of God's will and give yourself to this. 
It's an ambition that is fueled by the certainty of God's will as revealed in his word. This is why some people go and they give themselves to this. This is why churches like this sacrifice to send them because God said it will be done. And beloved, this is why we shouldn't give up even when there seems to be little progress. For any missionary, what is it that keeps them going on the field when it seems so difficult and so hard and nobody's listening or responding? When that happens, the true motivations and desires of the heart are exposed And Paul comes back and he says, when you've lost hope in that, here's where you ultimately hope this is God's will. He has said it. And I glorify him in looking to accomplish it. Spoke earlier of Robert Moffat. There's a portrait of his wife, Mary. Mary Smith was her maiden name. Moffat was that pioneer missionary from the London Missionary Society who ministered in South Africa. He was a rather independent individual. And according to his wife in her biography entitled Beloved Partner, he said he was some, she said he was sometimes given to moods. By that she meant that he was sometimes visionary and excitable, but also sometimes very depressed and very discouraged. Mary said of Robert that this was the time that she knew that she needed to minister comfort to him. Mary, on the other hand, was someone who was steady. She was disciplined. She was patient. She was very organized. And she had a strong faith. She had a faith in the future that some have said seemed to never waver. In fact, on one occasion, Robert had said in his work among those people of South Africa, he said, it's like sowing seed on rock. No penetration, nothing going on. Why am I even here? And it was in those moments that Mary did something unbeknownst to Robert. She wrote back to London, the missionary society where they were from, and she requested that they send a communion set something for which they could minister the elements among believing people in South Africa. They didn't have a believer in their midst. But Mary, in faith, said, send us this. We're going to need it. It was delayed. It took a long time for that to come. But in the, in the time in between it was ordered, and in the time that it came, the gospel began to do its work. And there were people that came to Christ, and there were nearly a dozen of them. And about the time that Robert decided we need to have a baptismal service and observe the Lord's table together as the group of God's people, two days before that event was scheduled to come, the communion set came in the mail. And Mary told him, I knew God would be faithful to his will, and here it is. That's faith, that's ambition, 
It's hard. But knowing that this is God's will and God will work fueled that ambition. Does it fuel our ambition? Not just among the people of the 1040 window. Does it fuel your ambition with your unsaved neighbor? Your unsaved family member that you've often thought, they'll never come to Christ. It is God's will that we proclaim the truth that he would do the work to bring those to himself that would glorify him for his mercy. Let's be ambitious about that. Let's take confidence and hope in that. Ambition to preach where Christ is not named. This was an ambition that fueled, was fueled by the certainty of God's word, as, or God's will as revealed in his word. But secondly, I want us to note this. It's an ambition that was focused on the privilege of doing God's work. Look with me at verse 17. Does this strike you as odd that Paul would say this? In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud. I'm proud. What is it that Paul is proud of? What are you proud of? What do you glory in? Put it in this context. When, when our missionary comes and reports to us of the work done in Central Asia, what will be your glory? What will you say? I'm, I'm proud of this. Well, look at what he says. The end of verse 17. I am proud of my what? Work. It is work, but it is work for God. Paul speaks that he is proud of this idea of working in sacred service. It is a work, not like just any work, it is a work for God in sacred service. Now, in a sense, this is true of every believer. When you come to faith in Christ, you are set apart and united with Christ, and therefore all that you do is for Christ. Paul says it this way in Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do it heartily as unto the Lord. So when you take a meal and you work hard to prepare that meal for someone who's in desperate need of it and you deliver it to them at their time of need, yes, it's work to make that meal, but you have worked for Christ. You have done his bidding and served in a way that honors him. But Paul is speaking here in Romans 15 of a particular work. Notice his unique work. Look at verse 15. He says, on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Paul says, here's the work I'm proud of. It's that God has set me apart to be a minister to these Gentile people. And notice he likens this kind of work to the work of a priest. Look at verse 16. It's a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the what? Priestly service. And later on in the verse, he'll talk about an offering. Because when you read the Old Testament, that's what priests did. They served in the temple and they presented offerings. And so Paul likens this work for God to a priestly work. Those priests were set apart in the Old Testament to do 
the work of God in the temple. Some of that was very mundane. They washed dishes, as it were. They cleaned out ashes, things that seem very ordinary and mundane, but they were set apart to do that work, and it was the work for God that they were doing. Here, Paul says, I am like a priest, verse 16, but my priestly service is in the gospel of God. I have been set apart by God to take this gospel to places where Christ has not been named. And he says, it's like a priest doing this service, and he wants to offer the Gentiles. Here's the offering he's presenting. It's the offering which is the Gentiles. And he says of these Gentile people that this offering would be acceptable to God, sanctified in the Holy Spirit. Here's what he's saying. I view my work for God this way. I am set apart in the service of God to preach the gospel to people so that when they come to Christ, it's like this is the offering I present to God because they are offering themselves. Remember, he's spoken of this in a very familiar passage in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. It should be holy, acceptable unto God. This is your reasonable act of worship. Paul says, this is what I'm doing. I'm presenting the gospel to people, that they will come to Christ, that they themselves will present themselves like this living offering to God, an acceptable sacrifice unto him. Now, beloved, here is the certainty that fuels this ambition, right? That when we do the work of God in presenting the gospel to people, that's God's work. When you minister in places or even among friends without great amount of visible return, you are guaranteed that the work in which you are engaged is not simply your work, it's God's work. And this is what God desires and what pleases him and honors him. What kept Paul going on those days when he was stoned and dragged out of Lystra and left for dead? Why did he get back up? Because this was the work for God. And he had given himself to this work of God, to presenting these offerings of people, as it were, as living sacrifices to him. So what keeps us going? What keeps the church giving and sacrificing and praying to help such workers? We too are engaged in the work of God. It is explained by God. It is empowered by God. It is given to the glory of God. That should fuel our ambition. There's a final thing that Paul says in this work for God. Look at verse 18. He says, I have reason to be proud in my work for God. Here's the work for God. But also he speaks of God's word in the sense of God working through him. Look at verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished where? Through me. You would think he would say what Christ has accomplished in all these offerings, right? All these Gentile people. But Paul's ambition is this. Christ is actually doing something through me. 
What had Christ accomplished through Paul? Keep reading in the verse, verse 18. What Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. We've looked at this before in in this book, but look over at chapter 16. And look at verse 26. Paul says, but speaking of God, but has now been disclosed or of the mystery of the gospel. This has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the what? Obedience of faith. How are we to read that? Paul actually begins this way in chapter 1 and verse 5. He says, here's what I'm doing. I'm preaching the gospel so people will come to the obedience of faith. We should read it this way. The obedience which is faith. Paul had preached in the Areopagus in Athens in Acts chapter 17, and he said, God at one time had overlooked all of these these people going their own way, but now he commands everyone to repent because he has chosen a man and he's shown that by this man he'll judge the nations because he raised him from the dead. And he said, this is God's command for all people, believe the gospel. Paul says, this is what God has given me to do to minister and bring about this obedience, which is faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. How did God do this? How does God accomplish this? Look back at 15, 18. Christ accomplishes through me to bring these Gentiles to obedience. How? By word and deed. This is how God has always ministered to other people the gospel it's by word and deed what does that mean quickly let me explain this to you look at first thessalonians chapter one when we send a missionary and we send them out to bring about the obedience of faith to to press the gospel where places where it hasn't been How will they do that? What's the means? What's the method? It has always been this method. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul describes this of his work in Thessalonica. Look at verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul says, When I think of Thessalonians and my ministry in Thessalonica, I know that God has chosen you for himself. How does he know that? Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in what? Word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul says, I know that God was working in you because when I came and I presented you the truth about Jesus, it wasn't like just off the top of your head and you thought, oh, that's nice. What's for dinner? It came in in power. It, It cut to the quick of your heart, and there was conviction there. In fact, look over at chapter 2 and look at verse 13. He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. 
that when we came and we preached this truth to you about Jesus, you didn't say, oh, here's another philosophy of man that we should live by. You understood this was the word of the eternal God. And the conviction was there. Now, Paul says, this is how God has worked through me. As I've been pressing the gospel into places where Christ is not named, I've been, been ministering the gospel, and it has come by word and deed. As I've preached the gospel, it hit the heart with power. Back to Romans chapter 15. The end of verse 18, it was by word and deed. And in verse 19, he said it was also by the power of signs and wonders. This was something unique to Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he'll speak of the signs of an apostle. And Paul, in his day, when he was ministering the gospel, these signs were confirmation of the word that he was giving, and he performed true miracles. We don't look for those miracles today, but Paul says, I showed these signs of an apostle. They authenticated my message. And ultimately, in verse 19, it was also by power of the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God was at work in, in this message of the gospel of salvation. Now, beloved, just think of it in these terms. Paul is a tireless worker. He's an amazing sufferer, as it is. He has done so much to press the gospel, and yet what does he give acclamation to? What is he boasting in? It's not me. It's Christ worked through me. It's Christ was working in me to accomplish this will of God. Think about all the things that Paul did. He mentions in verse 19, he says, I went from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. And if you look at it on a map, Illyricum is just across the Adriatic Sea from, from Italy, and it's a it's a it's a journey of about 2,000 miles. That's like getting in a car and traveling from here to San Antonio, Texas. But Paul did it not in a car. He did it on foot. He did it through mostly desert and troubled spots, dangerous areas without a convenience store every 30 minutes. He did it in danger of sea and peril of robbers, he says. What possesses a man to do that? He says, Christ was working through me. He was working through me and in me to accomplish this great thing. This is my ambition. This is my privilege to have Christ working through me. And so he says at the end of verse 19, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ just Briefly, a word of explanation. Paul's not saying that everywhere he went, everybody heard the gospel. He's not saying every individual had been fully reached or discipled. What he's saying is, my work as a pioneering ministry, I began something. I believe it was Paul's goal in this, to go somewhere, see people come to Christ, start a church, and that church would take over. And it was like he was lighting a match and lighting these little flames all around the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea. And he would stay for a little while and he would protect the flame to make sure it could shine brightly. And once it was stable, he would then move on. And this is how he says, I have fulfilled the ministry God has given me to do. It's Hudson Taylor, the great China missionary that said this, 
when he first began the work, he prayed that Christ would help him to do the work. Later, he prayed that he might help Christ in doing the work. Eventually, Taylor said he prayed that Christ would just do his work. And Taylor said, that's when it started happening. In the end, Paul wraps up this argument again with biblical truth. With this, I'm done. He says in verse 21, I, verse 20, I make it my ambition to press the gospel into places where it hasn't been. Verse 21, but as it is written. You can see Paul keeps coming back to this idea of revelation. God has said this. And now he quotes from the 52nd chapter of Isaiah, the last verse, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul says, this is what drives me. God has said, those who have never heard of Jesus, when they do, they'll see. They'll hear. They'll understand. Do you know where that quote's taken from? That's the last verse of chapter 52. You know Isaiah 53, don't you? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In fact, this is the first stanza of that servant's song, Isaiah 52 and 53. And Paul goes back and he pulls that out, this Old Testament revelation of what Jesus Christ the Messiah would do for people. And he says, even there God said it would happen. And that's why I'm ambitious to go. Beloved, all of God's people should be ambitious to see the gospel of Christ preached to those who have never heard. Why? Because this is the certainty of God's will. He's told us this will happen. We should be focused on this as doing the work of God. God's work, God's service, but God working through us in that service. This is our tremendous privilege, and we should see it as such. Throughout history, people have given themselves with this kind of ambition. One man named John Payton did so to a little island. It was called the New Hebrides in his day. It's called Vanuatu today. It's just off the coast of Australia. That island was actually known to be a place where cannibalism was rampant. It was called the Lonely Islands in 1858 because people didn't want to venture there. You certainly didn't want to be shipwrecked there. But Peyton, in his heart, under the call of God, decided that those people needed to hear of Christ. And he went. And it wasn't easy. His first four years were very difficult. He buried his wife and a child. It got to him very much so that, that he came home for a while. He needed to to recover from that. That was the right thing to do. But Peyton decided that he was going to go back, that those people did need to hear about Jesus. And so he went back in 1869, and after a hard labor among those people, he finally saw a few come to faith in Christ and believe and he held their first communion service as a small body of believers. And here's what Peyton recorded about that service. Listen to this. 
Peyton says, at the moment I put the bread and the wine into those dark hands, once stained with blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. He says, I will never taste a deeper bliss until I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. He said, being involved in the work of God, seeing Christ work through me, all of this in accomplishing the will of God, nothing like it on this earth. Do you believe that? Are you ambitious about that? Would you sacrifice to see that happen? May the people of Central Asia too glorify God for his mercy because we're ambitious to see that happen. Let's pray together. Father, by your grace, by your good hand, we have heard the gospel and we live in a land that is saturated with it. Lord, help us not simply to rest on our privilege, but that we would be ambitious to do all that we can to take this to people who have never heard. Thank you for our friends that have given themselves to do this. And may we as a church body and a church family share the same ambition to support in all the ways that we can to pray, to give. And Lord, maybe there would be others among this body that you would call to go in fulfilling this ambition to preach where Christ has not been named. And would you do this for your glory's sake? We ask this in the name of our King, Jesus Christ.